few faces here. Um, so this is Histories of the Unexpected Live, coming to you from the Penn Plim project at Powder. This so is Histories of the Unexpected. Powderham. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Kind of Sam Willis, and he's Professor um, Extraordinary of Early Modern British History at Cliff University. He is Professor of, James Davis, and we are your hosts for Histories uh, of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss uh, a, a surprising sitting, subject sitting there, using the unexpected historical uh, significance, and this week it's the which obviously uh, is all about the history so of reading. It's the Renaissance invention of the reading wheel. And don't forget that the history of the wheel is actually all about the Eiffel Tower, the Chicago Exposition of 1893, and, uh, rather brilliantly, the history of laziness. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter, you can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis, and you can follow me at James Davis. We're proud to be part of the excellent history Network, Home of Dan Snow's History Hit, and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss, and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce my co-presenter and co-writer of the Histories of the Unexpected podcast, BBC's Dr. Sam Willis. Uh, who is a genius. Uh, he's an expert on the Navy in the Age of Sail. Uh, he has a PhD in history and archaeology. He has written tons of books and presented some fantastic uh, TV series, including, importantly for this, On Castles. Um, a three-part on BBC4 uh, On Castles. Uh, but now over to Sam to tell you a little bit about Histories of the Unexpected. Um, Histories of the Unexpected was an idea that came to me just over a year ago. And I was sort of increasingly struck from all work I've done that everything has a history. Absolutely everything. Um, and, and as well as that, that, that all of those histories link together in very unexpected ways. So the, the basic principle was that you could take ideas like holes, history of holes absolutely fascinating and it links together with very significant periods in history, movements in history like the Reformation, like the American Revolution, whatever it is and it just takes a bit of elastic brain power to be able to uncover those unexpected histories and I mentioned the idea to James, my friend who is a professor of early modern history at Plymouth University and he immediately got it and it was this sort of little seedling of an idea and then it, it grew and it expanded and then we decided to record a podcast. We're going to be writing a book this summer. But the podcast was essentially we would take one idea, whether it was oranges or holes. Windows. Windows. But I'll talk about windows in a minute. And explain exactly how you can think about it. It's not the kind of history that gives you answers. It's the kind of history that raises questions. It's the kind of history that makes you think about the past in a different way. It's the kind of history that makes you think about the present in a different way. And that's why I think this idea of histories of the unexpected, of studying unexpected subjects in an unexpected way and linking them together in unexpected ways is hugely rewarding. And actually it's, it's one of these approaches that just, it, it helps you understand history so much more. So the idea really came to me um, when I was taking a tour around HMS Victory in Portsmouth.
And I'd lean inside and I'd explain how the, the hull of the ship was three feet thick in places, how there were a thousand men cowering inside from the enemy's guns. And then I went outside and I showed them the magnificent window. This, of course, is the window, and the officers had their cabin inside, Nelson had his cabin inside. And then I suddenly thought, I, I had this sort of epiphany. I had no way of explaining why there was a window on the back of a sailing warship. It's completely ridiculous. It's like having a conservatory on the back of a tank. And they were, these things represented empires. They went around the world flying the flag for Britain, these British ships. And then they were in battle, trying to win naval battles, which would change the fate of empires, it would change the shape of the whole world. What were they doing? And then I realised the only way you could possibly explain it was by looking at the history of windows, which is actually all to do with the history of looking. And then you understand why it was so important for the people inside the ship, A, to have a window, and B, to be able to enjoy the view out of the window. It was more important to be seen to be enlightened. It's sort of enlightenment, sort of knowledge. It was more important to be seen to be enlightened than protecting themselves and their crew. So I mentioned this to James, and he said, well, of course, I understand exactly what you're talking about, it's actually all to do with oranges. I said, what's all to do with oranges? He said, well, unexpected histories, they're all to do with oranges. And I said, well, well explain. Well, first, the window is all about defenestration. It's not all about the Enlightenment, it's about throwing people out of windows in the start of the Thirty Years' War. That's what we immediately That's what we, we, we both yeah. disagreed with each other and we had completely and different then, takes on everything, even though it's all about the same subject. But this was over a cup of coffee in the, in the Cathedral Green in Exeter, and I said that the windows, it, it, in actual fact, it's exactly like what I'm doing with oranges. So the orange, the orange is all about the history of the gunpowder plot. Then I told this story about how it was connected to a Jesuit priest who was imprisoned, uh, and how um, he would have these oranges smuggled in, he would use the flesh of the orange to bribe the jailer. He would peel the, the orange and use the skin to form rosaries, which were part of his Catholic practice. And he would keep the orange juice in order to write in invisible ink letters to his supporters outside of prison. And then he escapes, and then he gets caught up in the, in the gunpowder plot. So there's the link all the history of the smile, which is all about the... French Revolution. Yeah, I mean, you're all sitting here nicely now, and the, the history of sitting down is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, if you transform yourself back to the 13th century, A, you would not be being quiet, you'd all be talking amongst each other or shouting at us, and B, you'd probably be standing up. Um, and so everything that you're doing right now is to do with how you've been brought up, and it's to do with how society expects you to behave in a group listening to two historians. I'd be delighted if you just started chatting and having a nice time. I'm quite happy with doing things differently. But um, the history of pockets, I can see your pocket. Why have you got a pocket? What do you keep in your pockets? It's packed. It's yeah. packed. Oh, I'm not wearing a jacket. Yeah. I think this is my, this is my filing cabinet. Absolutely, my yeah. filing cabinet as well, on my bookcase. We're talking about the Spectacles, clothes. What are you wearing? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? Why is your hair like it is? How have you chosen to be who you are? How are you sitting down? Some people are sitting very beautifully relaxed here. Other people are slightly more up. It's all to do with cultural influences on your behaviour. It's absolutely fascinating. The history of putty, for example. Yeah. We can tell you an interesting story about the history of putty, or the history of dresses, or the history of hair, or shorts, or belts, or shoes, or laces, or earrings, or jewellery, 
or children. <laughs> now, I think yeah. the point to make, though, is that there's something that we would like you all to be able to pick up on. It's, we're kind of like preaching a gospel here, actually getting people to think in unexpected ways about history. So if you said, actually, I don't know anything about the history of Leicester, I know nothing about the history of Leicester, but I can tell you right now, it's really, really interesting. Because it's probably to do with, wait, the marketing of laces, it's to do with the marketing of shoes, it's to do with doing shoes up, it's to do with learning to tie laces, it's probably to do with killing yourself in prison with shoe laces, yep. Yep. Um, uh, to do with boots, it's to do with military shoes and laces, I don't know, what else? Uh, lace work, yeah, so it could be... Can uh, I say something? What about living on a shoe string? Living on a shoe string, absolutely. Do you know that happens? Tell us. Exeter. Of course. <laughs> Exeter is the centre of, of, of history. <coughs> yeah, because if you were bankrupt, you were in the Southgate prison, where everybody used to come into town. They would hang their shoe on their lace out the window, begging for money, so you were living on a shoestring. And any of you in North American uh, fraternity towns uh, will have seen pairs of shoes tied by the laces and swung up over telegraph poles. Uh, what's that all about? Like, what, what is that about? I mean, it's just about annoying your. It's about annoying your neighbour, uh, really. What we might point out, sorry, it's one of those. Yes, it's um, it's that as a historian, this is quite an odd thing to say. As a historian, I embrace ignorance, not knowing something's fine. It's absolutely fine, and you can explore the past just by asking questions of it. And all you've got to do is train your brain to think about it in an interesting way. Anyone can do it. And it's really rewarding. Once you've started, by now I'm interested in laces. I can go and go to the library and I can find out about the history of shoes or whatever. It's going to be the history of prisons. Um, and I think it's, it's opening a door for us as well. I hope you realise it's all very new for us. And I'm not going to give you answers here. I'm going to raise questions. And I've got loads of things that I can then go and research. So when I was at university, historians are always presented about as these sort of omniscient people. You didn't know the answer, and you were kind of condemned for the ignorance of not knowing the answer. History is, it is, that's nonsense. That is not the way you should study, or you should learn, or you should get involved in history. You said something very interesting. You said, I know something you didn't know. It's not, yeah. a, it's not a competition. <laughs> Absolutely, history is not a competition. That's the kind of thing we need to change, actually. Um, yeah. It's all about sharing knowledge. It's all about thinking differently and thinking creatively. Yeah. I mean, it's also about, I mean, it's, it's kind of approach to objects is something that... that that anthropologists and archaeologists have, have pioneered for years. It's the kind of thing that material culture historians are now embracing. We've got experts here in that kind of area. So, it, so it's basically a fusion of that, also with comparative history. So it's looking at history across the sort of across time, across across sort of across centuries, across continents, and looking at those kind of agents of change. Crashing around is fun, and it's it's, yeah. it's, 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 the, it's the best way of actually finding something. So if you're doing your research, ask yourself how, how things were interpreted in different cultures, in different places, in different times. Everything is so messy and also so specific in history. It's, it's, it's a funny mixture of the two. So, so one is that you have these influences from all over the world from, from all sorts of different periods, but the other side of that is that you have a very kind of unique example of particular practices. Pavan Castle is a perfect example. It is a castle, but there is no other castle like Pavan Castle. Yeah. Everything is muddled. So, so I'm one of these people that loathes making generalisations about history. Uh, it really gets my back up because you, they, they advance your understanding of history 
in exactly no way at all. And you, what you need to do is the opposite of it. You need to say, oh, not all castles are like this, but there were so many different castles, they were also different. And they were different because of where they were, they were different because of how they were built, they were different because of who lived in them. Um, this room, for example, this room is now full of you guys. Tomorrow night it might be full of someone completely different. And what goes on in this room will be fundamentally different. So to say, writing the history of this room, it was all about meetings, completely misses the point. It's not, it's actually, it's all about moments in people's lives where they were sharing knowledge and sharing thoughts, and those dramatically changed according to who was here. So there you go, meetings. Excellent, excellent. As a, as a way of sort of, of introducing this thing, what we're going to do is we're going to start with a little sort of unexpected history of Tavern Castle. Uh, just, to sort of, just as a sort of bit of fun. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take inspiration from two items that are in the castle, the narwhal tusk and the Channon bookcases, so these amazing 1740s, you know, lacquered with, with in metal inlay bookcases, are absolutely amazing. And we're going to use those to talk about the history of horn and the history of bookcases, or the unexpected history of bookcases. What I want to start with, Sam, is the history of castles. When I, if I said to you, I mean, and, and this is some, you're somebody who's um, produced a three-part documentary series on castles, and there's a thing or two about castles, but what do you think about, off the top of your head, when I say the word history of castles? I, I do have a slight head start with castles, but I did yes. <laughs> just think about Just a slight head start. It's, it's, it is, I mean, these ideas are very fresh, so... Um, I was seeing people walk, walk in the door, and I had driven here, and I walked in the door, and you driven here, and you brought your kids. And it made me think that castles are magnets. They, they attract people from all around. They always have done. What's happening now is very similar to what would have happened in 1350. Uh, I don't even know when this person was. 1370? 1392. 1392, okay. Well, the lady yeah. Guides here as well. Also, <laughs> So it's to do with kind of, uh, well, one, one thing is it's to do with control of, of the local environment, the local landscape, but it's also to do with attracting it as well. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's so easy to get sucked in by history, historical objects, particularly massive buildings, and so a really important thing to do is to see the negative of what you're looking at. And in this case, you have a massive castle in the landscape, which is dominating the landscape. But when I got first interested in castles, I was interested in timber castles of South Wales, which don't exist anymore. But they were huge. They were also only stone in the local environment, so they made all of their castles out of wood. But they were massive. I mean, they were as big, as significant, as symbolically important, as large. Close. Is it? It's going As large as, as a big castle like this. So um, this tells us a great deal about um, local, local resources for building as well. Um, you can't get away from sieges, but it's quite interesting thinking about how sieges worked. And, and one of the ways, I mean, I'm essentially at heart a naval and maritime historian, and so one of the things I think about the castles is ships. Uh, they're almost identical, because once you shut the doors of a castle, you're isolated, you're stuck. And so the people inside it have to survive on what's inside the castle, just the way people in the ship have to survive on what's in the ship if it's in the middle of the Pacific. Either you're surrounded by enemies or you're surrounded by the ocean. 
Um, so that kind of isolation in the environment is really interesting. So it's the opposite of what I was saying about being open and being part of the environment and people being attracted to it. And that's what Castle's all about. They're very, very confusing, wonderfully so. So you have isolation, but then you have attraction. You have defence, but then you also have extreme vulnerability because of that isolation. It's amazing how many castles fell because of deception, because of deceit. And it's not, it's, it's not about military strength, it's about, it's about the opposite of military strength. So I think that's why they're so, so fascinating, because pretty much anything, any historical topic you take there, they, they will, castles will fit at either end of the spectrum. And that's a perfect example of why uh, they fit into this idea of history being messy. Excellent. So what we have there is a sort of is a sort of could I say a traditional approach to castles, and in a sense that it's about defence and it's about architecture and building and, and and sieges and that sort of thing. What I'm going to do now is give you a kind of unexpected history of Powderham Castle, in particular, using the kind of methodology that we were talking about earlier on, and say that in fact the history of Powderham Castle is all about peaches. Uh, those of you who are, who are, who, who are local here uh, will know exactly what I'm talking about. But for, for, for other people, how do, we, how do we look at the history of Powerham Castle from the perspective of a peach? Now, the guy that you have here... It's a ridiculous it is, it's, it is ridiculous, <laughs> but its history is unexpected. But it's, 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 I've moved from oranges, and I also do lemons, I've moved from oranges it's very to peaches. Fruit-based historian. It's very fruit-based historian. Um, so we have here uh, the third Viscount, William. William Courtney, Kitty Courtney, who on his 21st birthday had a, sent out all these invitations to 600 people to come and celebrate in a silk marquee out on the lawn. And if you read this through, 1790, on the Friday night, the 30th of July, there's a masquerade and supper. On the 31st, there's a concert and supper. And on the 2nd of August, there is a ball followed by supper. Day off to recover yeah. on the first. Uh, and, and, and as part of it, he bought 600 peaches, costing at the time two pounds. And this is like spending like, you know, an awful lot of money on peaches. These are luxury, luxury goods that need to be imported specially. We're spending 1,200 pounds. This is about, so, so, so the peach and powderum is about display, it is about magnificence, it's about showing off. This is a 21-year-old, you know, having a really amazing party. It's also about oranges. That other one is about being near the sea as well, so it would be very difficult for a castle in the middle of near Birmingham, so yeah. you actually get access to yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that, so that kind of... So fruit coming in fruit down the edge. Yeah. So, yeah. so Exeter is one of the most important ports, and it's to do, he's, he's, he's doing something unique, Yeah. Uh, not just within the kind of local, because he's got the money to spend on peaches. Yeah. He's the point is they're peaches, yeah. rather than yeah. whatever else. And that's a really, that kind of maritime, I actually want to talk to you about this at another, another, another point, but that maritime history of power and I think is incredibly important. You know, you look at how prominent the castle is on the X and controls all the trade going up and down. And I think that's a really sort of key aspect of it. We move from peaches to oranges. Now this is a story uh, here that uh, we have here, uh, William of Orange's chair. And um, William of Orange, when he came across, 
1688, landed in Tor Bay, came to Ford House. He did. Ford House over in near Newton Abbott. That was his first night with the Courtney's. Um, and apparently sat on this chair. This chair then travelled to Powderham with that provenance and with that story. And what that, we don't actually know whether it's true or not, but it's certainly a kind of story that has, has travelled with it and that is attached to it. Why do you think it matters that but it's, it's true or not? It doesn't. No, I know, and it's interesting that he sat on the chair. Yeah. Rather than it's something because, that stood because there's a, lots of examples of people sitting yeah, yeah, yeah. on chairs, and that apparently is, is a really important. Or people having gloves. Because what you're what you're trying to do in the lo in the locality, you are trying to associate a, an item, whether it be furniture, whether it be clothing, um, whether it be an inscription or graffiti in a in a window or something like that. You're trying to associate it with a famous person. So what it's trying to do is it's trying to establish Powder and Castle in a central, dominant national history narrative. Yeah. So it's connecting it to that bigger picture. But that was to do with entertainment as well. And it's about, it's yeah. sits in the chair, you're not entertaining them, you're bringing them to your house and probably sitting them at the table. It's to do with a kind of a, a, an embracing of that yeah. person. So it's yeah. politeness, you're associating yourself with the incoming regime. This person sat at our table. We have embraced him. We are. We are. We are. It's part of this process of the future. It's the politics of sociability. So it's about you know who are the important people that you have dinner with when you first arrive in a country. Is the Courtney's, and the Courtney's are the sort of you know in this region were the kind of you know important political brokers. So sat in a chair is one. Slept in bed. Is yeah. Effect, yeah. Effect, yeah. 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 Um, the first occurrence of the ghost story, and I, I, I tell you, I, I tried to pry it out of uh, Felicity's magnificent brain uh, the other day. But somewhere in here, we think early 18th century, a mother, a skeleton of a mother and child were found. And this window here, during the Second World War, uh, during the time when you had to black everything out so that light wouldn't come out, so that enemy bombers couldn't see you know, where they were going, these were screwed shut. And one morning, uh, the Countess came down to find them open. There are Nazi And ghosts. nobody knows, there's nobody knows who did it. Letting the Germans in. There's also, there's also a ghost here now. So, the current Earl tells me, a month ago, the ghost arrived back, pushed somebody down a set of stairs. What I think is interesting about the history of ghosts is how our Belief and understanding of them, he terrifies us all the time. Our belief and understanding of changes through history. So, so people don't just believe in ghosts all the time like this. They believe in ghosts, it goes down, then it goes up, then it goes down, and it changes in location as well. So, some people believe in ghosts more often in some places than others, and then during certain periods. So, the first one was a very obvious example. It was a massive upsurge in people believing in ghosts because so many people died, because there was this kind of collective national problem of actually dealing with mass death. Lots of visions of ghosts in the trenches, people being helped by ghosts of loved ones and mothers, having got in the Second World War as well. So ghosts are fascinating. I'd love to ghosts are like monsters. Do, a, do a history of them. Ghosts are like monsters. They come at periods of crisis. Yeah. So people believe in them 
during periods of crisis. And it's all related to the um, Reformation, oh, as always, yeah. of course. Lots of early 17th century ghosts. But about interpretation of ghosts, changes as we move from a Catholic world to a Protestant world yeah. as well. Um, we have ghosts that frighten you, then ghosts that help you. That's kind of one of the most obvious. We do have ghosts that move stuff around. That's always a It's a poltergeist here at the moment, yeah. apparently. But not if it pushes someone, I don't think poltergeist push. It's a malevolent poltergeist. Malevolent. Yes. <laughs> so I hear. Pattern is also all about blood, and we talked about this in our podcast on blood, and that's Felicity with the the family role there, the Courtney family role. So, so the history of the castle is it's, it's a castle that has, been, that has gone from generation to generation. It's about bloodline. It's about inheritance. It's also about boxes, and we've talked about boxes. The castle is full of boxes, absolutely full of boxes. It's about archive boxes. It's about memory boxes. If you go up into the private part of the castle that's off the tour guide route, it's full of boxes like these. Literally, the trunks that, that different generations of the family were sent away with to school are back at the mothership, the back of Powderham Castle, and they are full of things like this. We have an intern at the moment who is in a very dusty room. He came in this morning complaining of, of, of the dust, and so we've given him masks. Um, uh, in order to sort of protect him, but he's going through and cataloguing everything that's in all of these trunks, and they are amazing. I found amazing stuff. Um, here are, here's an example of, of some of the boxes. I looked in this box here, uh, and it says on it, prayer books, old. Opened it up, and there we are. We've got masses of prayer books from the early 19th century from the family, all inscribed, little finger prayer books like the size of your finger here. So it shows that in the Victorian period, what in fact we have is a deeply pious, fact, deeply pious family. It's passed from to another sort of cadet branch related to the Bishop of Exeter, so it's a deeply pious family. Uh, we have cousin Betty Seymour's box here, uh, which, I, which I looked at, which is the book there. We have ammunition boxes full of of, of prayer books. We have this here, uh, Laura, I'm showing Laura this the other day, and this is uh, used in baptism, so to sort of scoop water uh, over the head of a child, and there's Felicity again uh, with Kitty Courtney's icebox, uh, which, is, which is sort of inlaid with, with lead there. Um, I also came across lots of hair. Uh, in, 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 those, in those rooms that are up in the 30s section, I came across a desk that was completely unused. There's a satchel on it, there were prayer books on it, and there were love letters. And in the love letters was this, this is dated 1868, and these little sort of snippets of hair here uh, are around the same period. This here is much earlier. This is supposed, this is labelled as Gertrude Marchioness of Exeter's uh, hair. It's a lock of her hair. And Gertrude Marchioness of Exeter is famous for being involved in the royal supremacy debate and, um, and with, with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and gets into all sorts of trouble for sort of being involved with the nun of Kent, a woman who who sort of said that she had prophecies about the death of of, of Henry and Anne. It's also about floating dairy thermometers. <laughs> uh, this is in Betty Seymour's box, um, made in Germany. How old's that? 
we haven't been able. The problem is there's so much material, we're going through it, and what it's going to take us another year to just start processing it. I also came across uh, another, Felicity took me up another little staircase off the haunted landing, and there's a, there's a single room there. The only way you can get up it is through a very, very narrow um, staircase. There's a wardrobe in there which is still full of clothes, and there is a suitcase, a lone suitcase on the floor, and it's full of all sorts of things. Um, we need to look through it, we need to catalogue it, we need to see what it is, but it's full of what look like, I'm, I'm arguing they're horns, but what look like sort of, you know, teeth. I think they're going to be used for tools. Yeah. tools. Yeah. What I want to talk about now is inspired by some of the objects at Powder, is to talk about the narwhal tusk that is in the library, um, which is about two and a half metres to three metres long. Um, I saw one of these uh, the other day on the internet, having been sold for £36,000. Uh, Elizabeth I uh, was supposed to have paid £10,000 for a narwhal horn. So the history of horns, Sam. What do you think of when you think about the history of horns? The, I mean, a ridiculous amount of things. Um, they were, they were very, very famous because they were linked with the unicorn myth. Yeah, weren't they? So yeah. they actually, you know, people who got them thought they were actual horns of unicorns, um, and they had a very distinctive kind of spiral pattern, which actually is what helps them grow straight. That's the purpose of the spiral. But if you look now at um, kind of modern pictures of unicorns, I've got one if you flip through a couple of slides. Yeah. Uh, next one. Yeah. Yeah. I got this from my daughter. But here we go, here we go. I mean, very distinctive. You'll see them all in um, these modern pictures. Let's just go back one to the uh, thing. So that, that is a novel. That is a novel. Um, has this long thing. That's how you can get a tooth. Uh, and it comes out one side, very occasionally, usually the left side, very occasionally it comes out both sides. And, and the teeth tend to go the, the same length. Um, this odd kind of spotted spotted hide, I mean, they're, they're very bizarre things, um, from the Arctic. So, one of the really interesting things about it is that it's, it's, it's linked with the history of Arctic exploration, fundamentally. Now, interest in novels kind of really arose uh, mid-16th century onwards, uh, and it's no coincidence at all that that is when we really start exploring the Arctic, particularly around the 1560s and the 1570s. Elizabeth sending people off all around the world. Um, so you've got Martin Frobisher who goes north, um, and Drake who goes to the Caribbean. I think he gets the Berlin gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the point is that Drake comes back having captured a, a, a treasure galleon, and he's got millions and millions of pounds. Um, and there has been this sort of because of that, there was a desire, almost a sort of competitive desire, to find out what was going on in the north as well. Um, and novel tusks were the answer. Because I, I think the point is that people didn't know they existed. <laughs> and so you can sell this novel tooth, this novel tusk, mm. as anything else. But it's, 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 it's actually partly to do with the, it's a history of prejudiceness, isn't it? Mm. And the Vikings were interested in novel tusks as well. Absolutely. It comes from old Norse. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me at all because yeah. they would be the first people who went up to the Arctic before the before yeah. we did. So they would have known about it, they would have examples of it. So I reckon, yeah, the earliest examples yeah. of it must sort of, be. Sort of slightly earlier, so sort of 9th, 10th century. 
Yeah, maybe, yeah, 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 something like that. Um, so I think when you look at the horn, one of the things you've got to, to really consider is the absence, <coughs> absence of the horn. Um, so you've got to think about the, the animal itself. Um, and this is a very early, early picture of this, but it's, this is 18th century. This isn't 16th century. Um, and later on, let me just borrow that here, yeah, so I'm just going to bounce around a bit. Um, this is Turner painting in the 1840s. He did a series of whaling pictures from the 1840s. Um, it's wonderful, this one. You've got the kind of, which we can make out, but this sort of um, foam of blood coming out of the whale here. Uh, and there's another one. This is, this is another whale. You can just see its tail up here. And, and, and another line of another whale here. There's actually two whales in this picture. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. These had a very sort of dramatic effect on the public. This is in the 1840s, because even then, very, very, very few people knew what a, what a sperm whale or a whale at any time. There are lots of examples of bits of whale, vertebrae of whale being used for tables and all sorts of things, and uh, carved bits of bone particularly. I can talk about that later. But um, you need to bear in mind this, this, this fact that no one knows, A, what the whale looks like, and B, the process of killing it. So the tusk itself looks extremely beautiful and very kind of peaceful and very quiet sitting in the corner of the library but there's a huge sort of hidden history of hunting brutal slaying of this creature and ignorance of what the gnarl looks like and I, I think um, that again creates its own myth around this creature and certainly around whaling. It doesn't mean that people were ignorant of, of whales. Um, the thing that strikes me about the narwhal tusk is like, well, why is it there? Why do people collect it? And it, you know, we can't date it either. It's very difficult to date. It's in one of the early inventories. But what is it about people wanting to collect horns like that? In the way that people, I think it's different from the way in which people might put antlers, you know, when they're hunt, when they're when they're out hunting and it's the the stag is sort of mounted on the wall. It's different from that. But it's about, I think it's about curiosity and collecting. And interest in the natural world. So yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it being rare is a very, very important, important yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the interesting things about animals is you can hunt them from the shore, uh, which is different than most whales. So most whales you have to go to sea, okay. and you have to have a crew of at least five people in a 30-foot boat, and you are catching a 60-foot whale and doing it with a 10-foot spear. Yeah. Um, it's one of the kind of classic examples of humans colliding with nature. Um, Narwhals are different. Um, they swim in packs. They come certain times a year, but they do come very close to shore. And Inuits hunt them from the shore. It's actually very difficult to, to get one because they, they surface and breathe, and you've got to kill them before they exhale. Because if you kill them as they've exhaled, or you shoot them, they see. Um, and so for every tusk that's recovered, there might be six on the seafloor dead narwhals. 
Um, so that's another way of looking at this kind of absence of the, the you know, the, the, sort of the shadow, the negative of it. Um, but it's not, it's not, this, this interest in whales I find fascinating. So I've just talked a bit, a bit about hunting, but the other way you can get whales, you can get whales like these beachings. So whales have beached everywhere all over the world for years, which is why you have wonderful things like this. This is 600 BC. Um, and we think this is the vertebrate of a whale. It's a table. It's a fishmonger's table made out of whale vertebrae. Wow. Uh, there are numerous numerous examples of this um, in Greek in Greek art, um, and that also kind of links with the history of, of sea monsters and people. Again, it's, it's understanding and, and I think valuing the the natural world around them. But mm. it's you know people people love a mystery. Look what I've got. I feel like big kind of coiled thing, you'll never guess what this is from. It's sort of two to talk about. Yeah. This is a talking about. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you'd have next to your wedding front door. Yeah. So I have a question. Was this normal probably killed just for the horn, or was it actually killed so its blubber could be harvested and you know it was useful? So from what I know, um, other whales are much more useful than novels. Mm. Um, so Although their blubber was used for oil, they did produce a certain amount of oil. It was certainly nothing like a sperm oil, um, which were in, incredibly valuable. So those probably just killed through stuff. And also the, the, the tuscan itself, the, 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 the hormon itself, is supposed thought to have magical yeah. properties. So it's a, it's a sort of an antidote to poison. I mean, in Norse legend, if you drank from a horn that was made out of a narwhal tusk, you wouldn't be poisoned. Um, which is like the which, which is like the that, that, oh wait, oh wait, oh wait. There. Yeah. that's a that's the same principle that this Norse legend of drinking out of narwhal tusks so you can avoid being poisoned. This is um, in a Viennese museum. It's a 17th century prince's goblet made out of narwhal tusks. So although here we have the entire tusk itself, there was a kind of an entire business of making stuff out of narwhal tusks as well. Yeah. Where are you going next with this? I was just going to uh, talk about ships, but I don't know. Okay, no, 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 talk about ships. I'm going to talk about cup holes. Okay. <coughs> a different kind of, take horns in a different kind of way. Yeah, we did this very briefly during the Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm um, going to talk about bookcases too. So we've got the, we've got the tusk itself. I've talked about goblets made out of tusks. Um, and then there's, it's part of this whole kind of history of carving things out of bones. Bones are brilliant for carving. Um, and they last for a very long time. One of the reasons we've got so much scrimshaw, I haven't got much scrimshaw, but I say this carving in bones, that's really interesting, um, uh, is that it can't be melted down. It's not like bullion, it's not like someone carving something in silver or gold, which can only be melted down a lot. So it means that in terms of percentage of stuff that's fired from the past, it, things that have calmed down are very, very high because they, they cannot be destroyed and used for something else. Anyway, one of my uh, things I'm, I love particularly are the use of bone to carve, next slide, um, warship models, but these are made by prisons. Um, so often often bone carving, one of the things that you have for the person doing the carving bones is it's an awful lot of time. So if you're a waiver, you've got months of hanging around, you might catch one whale, and it, that takes an hour and a half. So the rest of the three years, you've got to do nothing. Um, prisoners of war is the same thing, so it's really important for Devon, 18, from between 1803 and 1815, you've got 122,000 French prisoners in it. Apart from, and that doesn't include the Swiss, the Poles, the Yanks, the Dutch, they're absolutely everywhere. Go up on the moor, they, um, uh, they're kept in prison ships, 
Uh, they kept up on a, a, a Dartmoor prison as well. A lot of the landscape of Dartmoor was actually constructed and made by French prisoners of war. You think it's a natural landscape, but it's not. It's been made by the French. Um, one of the things they did was make, uh, was make ship models, and they'd use wood, they'd barter for it, often they'd use hair for the rigging, um, but they would use bone. And so some of the most exquisite models are either made by either bone or ivory, or have certain aspects of it in it. So, yeah, it's another way of using bone thinking about the horn. Another way, I mean, we could, we could take, we could have done a whole hour on the history of the horn. You know, we haven't done the sort of drinking horn, we haven't done musical horns, we haven't done blowing of the horn, you know, all of those kinds of things. The horn associated with the post office, we could have done all sorts of things. What I want to do is a sort of socio-cultural thing about cuckoldry. You see the man here, uh, in this uh, 17th century woodcut, you notice the horn stand. Now, cuckoldry is when, uh, when somebody is supposed to have been cheated upon by his uh, wife. Uh, it's either, it either represents somebody who is henpecked to put upon by his wife, or has been cheated upon by his wife, or, uh, as here, go to the war. It's somebody who is a coward, so it's associated with cowardice. And this is something that runs through uh, medieval, uh, through uh, to the sort of 18th century. Uh, and you can still see it today in certain, in certain uh, parts of the country as these kind of older traditions are kept on. Um, we, but it's effectively um, what it is. It's connected to a, a tradition called Charivari, uh, which is across Europe. Uh, it's Italian in derivation. Um, but it's a way in which people within the village used to, um, used to police um, and, 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 and sort of enforce their own sort of form of social control. Um, and, and in a sort of popular way, they used to judge people in the village for doing various things. And what would happen is a, a husband, a man of the village, who was thought to have been a cuckold, he would be rounded up, he would have antlers, either tied on his person, and then he would be taken around the village, or antlers would be put on his door. In other ways, in other words, he would have been utterly humiliated as part of this. And you can see this, this trope, so this, this kind of imagery, these ideas, not only in popular customs, and we can see that in woodcuts like this, we can see it in songs, in ballads, um, we can also see it in paintings of the period. This is one of my favorite uh, sort of domestic Dutch interior scenes, uh, Jan Steen. Again, I can talk for three hours about this. It's a brilliant kind of window into looking at the domestic interior and domestic world. It's basically celebrating the birth. You'll note at the heart of it, girls, at the heart of it, see that, see that red blanket? That is a little baby. The baby has just been born. And this over here, this is the baby's mummy, and the baby's mummy is being fed. And there's a little cradle there, there's somebody making porridge for her there. This is probably the midwife who's being paid um, for, um, for her services by the, the father, um, who's, if you have a look, he's putting his hand in his purse there to give money. But look at this fiend at the back here, who's putting his 
fingers uh, behind his head. Have any of you done that to people in photographs? Oh, yeah. uh, you're basically, you're making the cuckold's horns uh, behind somebody. I think there was a senator who got in trouble with it recently uh, in the US for doing something silly like this. But what it's effectively doing it is it's a critique on the whole thing. It's a critique of male patriarchal power, which is being represented by the father in the middle, and it's basically saying, this isn't your child. Um, so it's kind of completely undercutting all of that. Or, we also see it in Shakespeare, and you can see the kind of the idea of horns in throughout Shakespeare plays. You think about the Winter's Tale, and Leontes, whose friend, you know, he, he um, whose, whose friend, a uh, fellow king, he thinks has been um, cheating with his wife, and there's all sorts of imagery there about him, about the, the sort of feeling on his, the horns on his temples, sort of feeling that he's been, he's been cheated on. It's in As You Like It, Orlando protests Rosalind is no horn maker, so it's, it's connected with female chastity. Um, and, and security. The foresters in that scene do a mock tribute to the cuckold. Take thou no scorn to wear the horn. It was a crest ere thou was born. Thy father's father wore it, and thy father bore it. The horn, the horn, the lusty horn is, a, is not a thing to last to scorn. And there, I think it's much more about being, being henpecked and men being you know, subject, subject to bossy wives, basically. So there, the horn. Amazing. Who knew? Who knew? We've got time, about 15, 20 minutes, to do bookcases. The house, for those of you who work here and know it very well, is riddled with bookcases. All of small, um, you know, and from all sorts of different periods. What is the actual uh, adjective? The house is what's it with bookcases? Because it, it's not riddled. It's not riddled. <laughs> it is. <laughs> what would you say? Wormed, I like that. It is wormed. What was that? It is threaded. Adorned. Adorned. Armoured. I like it. Kind of protectable. Festooned. Festooned. What we need to invent is that's what this crowded. Crowded with bookcase. It is it is it is it is opulent. It is seeping. It is overflowing. It's groaning. Why? Why is it overflowing you tell me. I don't know. I mean, it's something to do with the kind of obsession with so, so, having books on this So I've often thought about country houses and their libraries. Uh, and, you know, the, if you have a look at the history of the country house library, it's towards the late 16th century that we see the development of the country house library at a time when you did ask, at a time when we see a shift in, we see a humanistic shift in the idea of the gentleman. And the gentleman moves, it's all connected with how the aristocracy shift over time. So the aristocracy shift from being a kind of warrior aristocracy, concerned with, with, with sort of military endeavor, to being sort of much more educated and useful as governors. And part and parcel of that is also that these are people who have landed estates and leisure and it's connected to, not only connected to print and the rise of print and the rise of books, but it's also connected to um, gentle learning. And so what you see is, is the development of the 16th century Renaissance library, and you can map it and see how it explodes. And by the 18th century, 
it, you know, these are these are fairly, you know, these are fairly well developed. There's a lot of work at the moment about about bibliomania. So that in the 18th century there is an explosion of libraries, and I think that is how that's that's the kind of background context to why to how you situate the Channon bookcases, which are these amazing bookcases, um, which were actually they're actually downstairs in the new library. But when they were when they were first built, they were actually on the first floor in the old library. 1740, John Channon, local local Exeter cabinet maker, uh, very fancy um, sort of African uh, veneer wood on here uh, with sort of these these elaborate brass inlays. There's a plate that has the name of the maker, and they are you're able to take them. Um, they then move downstairs and they acquire these dolphin plinths, uh, which are 19th century, and that was they they were dated fairly recently. So they're owned now by the V&A, uh, but they are they're housed here, so they're on loan to 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 the house and stuffed full of books. And I think in some ways it is about it's about the bookcases are about displaying your learning. So it's not necessarily about about reading and the history of reading, it is about display. And as you walk through that library, my first thing that I think of is, I bet nobody's read all of these. Because it is about, it's about having, you know, we've got 5,000 books in there. It's about having a well-furnished library. But we can take it in all kinds of ways. One of the things that the project has done is that we have, we have catalogued the library, or we've we've kind of we've resurrected the catalogue um, from the library, digitised it, and you can you can get a sense of when books were acquired, the dates of them. You can map that against the family. You know, you've got a the set the second viscount has thirteen daughters. They're all being educated in or brought up within the house. And I think what you what 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 I'd love to do is get a sense of female reading within within the house. Uh, and I think, you know, what I think we really need to do is go through a lot of that material, see what there is there. Um, we've, got, we've got personal writings, we found a manuscript music book the other day that's dating from about 1804. Um, I found receipts in Devon Heritage Centre for um, purchases of paper. So you get this sort of, from all of those sort of, you know, those sort of scraps of information, you start being able to build up a female world of education and reading and literacy. You know, so a familiarity. And that, that is how I would read those bookcases. You did ask. I did. You did ask, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I, I love these things. Oh, um, do you want to go back? Yeah, go yeah. yeah. So, um, it's obviously all about the display of your books is this really important point that James is making, and, uh, and he said that, you know, I'm not sure whether he would have read all of these books. And in many respects, it's about the book as an object, a kind of desirable cultural object itself, rather than what's in it, and there's a kind of a, a fundamental change there. But at the same time, some of the people would have been reading these books, and it's being able to pinpoint the difference between uh, looking at books or walking past them. It's also interesting looking at the bindings of books. Yeah, the, the bindings of books are absolutely fascinating, they're all put in display, but notice they're all put spine in. So it's fine out. So you're showing off the binding, but um, as we'll see, not all libraries were like that. Um, uh, accessibility is interesting. There are no gaps. I mean, for me, that's the, literally the opposite of my kind of bookcase. That's slightly irritating me, actually. It doesn't come in with me. 
It's not, it's not the way I would treat books um, at all. I'm, 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 You've given away most of your books recently. I am. I'm, I'm very um, come and go with books. I, I, I'm quite violent with them. I write in them. I tear pages out of them. I see them as, um, as, as kind of working objects which are temporary to my use of them, uh, which most people don't do, I have to say. But it's just the way I work. Um, and uh, it, works, very low church it works, books it works well. very, very well with me. Uh, no gaps. You always need gaps. I don't like having no gaps because that's like someone that's very comfortable with their knowledge and their learning. I do really have gaps everywhere. Or I, I pile stuff up because my, think about what your bookcase is. I mean, for me, it's an archive of my um, desire for knowledge. So I always wrote books because I didn't know the answer to something. If uh, I started off, I did the, the uh, history of the ship in Turner's painting, The Fighting Tenorette, because no one had done history of the ship. And I sat there in front of the painting, thinking, well, I wonder what, what, what's that ship then? Why on earth has he chosen that ship? Why has he painted it that way? Some art historians have thought about why he painted it that way, but no one had actually looked back in the history of the ship. So, out of all of the books I've written, all of them, for me, have been a quest for knowledge for an answer. Um, and so, that's what it kind of represents for me, where I, I know that other people, their bookcase represents a kind of a, a quest for answers, for changing the way that they behave. And sometimes it, it's, it, it represents good intentions, so these are all the books I'm going to read, about how to become a better person, and it also kind of represents failure in being able to meet those good intentions, because you never actually read the books. So, he, he, Everyone's bookcase represents different things for them. I'll give you a glimpse of my study. Do you know one of the differences, immediate differences between those book, the channel bookcase, is that it's a show, it's a display case. Yeah. Yours is a working bookcase. Absolutely. So it's about, you know, you've got all the sort of, you know, your paraphernalia, your trinkets, and then reference books, and the book and the books up here, it's about piles of books and working on particular things. It's a it's a historian's yeah. Like, I keep stuff on my bookshelves. Um, so I've got, I was given this recently, it's a little kind of uh, a mariner's thing with a compass in there. I've got a pot of ink that's spilt here. I've got something from my grandfather here. I've got a really cool desk tidy here, which is quite He has cool stuff. It is so chaotic. Really cool. My English teacher when I was at school didn't have any bookcases, and his bookcases, his bookcases were the floor. So everything was piled up kind of waist height. He had to sort of walk into his room like that. And um, I've always been quite happy just chucking things on top. Um, and it allows you to do that. Say, so I'm actually, that's all my stuff on, on George Washington that I was doing recently. So I have kind of, I have subdivisions of everything in random places. Um, other people organise their books according to size. I've got big books here, according to colour, subject, date. Usually for me it's kind of current projects. So I usually have six or seven going on at once. So, um, and this is how libraries organise books. The, yeah. the, it's all about the Judas and all. It becomes kind of increasingly tidy to go around the corner. Uh, pictures of you? Yeah, like, really, really. Like Nelson, I photos of myself all over my house. I just think that there, there, there are so many different aspects to bookcases. Um, you were mentioning the catalogues, interesting, because I, I've got so many books now, I don't know what I've got, which is really annoying. I've got to say that I need to catalogue them. Do you alphabetize? No, no, no. Yeah. The the one thing about if you if you think about those lovely bookcases, we've got those as an artifact object we can look at. So we can catalog them. We can see how those books are organized. I can promise you they won't be put randomly in those bookcases. There's a there's a way that they can put there. 
Now, from ancient medieval library catalogues, even though the library itself has long vanished, we can recreate the organisation of space in like an 8th century library of Damascus, for example. And that tells us how the medieval mind work works in terms of organising academic, academic volumes, what went where, how it went there, and how people moved around libraries. Absolutely fascinating. It's one of these great examples of historians being incredibly creative with what they've got. So that, um, the, the wonderful bookcase here is great, but it's also kind of, we're very lucky to have it. We don't necessarily need to have it to find a lot no. of the answers we get from No. And what's also interesting about the power is the secret doors. There's usually yeah. one. I've seen spot. I think. Yeah, there are tons. Really, you've got a secret window. Everything's secret about this house. So obviously it's not very playful, is it? These are fake books. Yeah. So what would be interesting is to, is to see what are the books that you choose to have as your fake books. We haven't done that, but it's a little, you know, what do you put on? What books do you pretend that you have on your door as you open it up? What is it? What, you guys have been through the secret door, haven't you? And what did you think of the secret door? What do you think they're for? Interesting. They're very interesting. So well, one of the things that, I'm, that we're thinking about is how people, why they, why they built them. I mean, some people think that it's about servants. So it's about, it's about separating the servants off from the private family. And so they're going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you, I was, I was wandering around with some real experts, and they had, a, they opened the door up, and they looked at the woodwork inside it. Which was Randy looked at the woodwork inside it, and basically said, "This is far too highly finished, far too highly polished to be a, a servant's mm -hmm. sort of thoroughfare. This is in fact something that was intentional and that is ornate, and it's much more about the kind of the, the people, the owners of the house, kind of coming through and being able to sort of." you know, walk walk around the property. One of the most interesting things I found with bookcases actually is um, it's, a, it's a hidden bookcase. So so you have a bookcase which is actually two or three shelves deep. So you walk up to it, you take a book off the shelf, and then there's another layer of books behind it. And that's amazing. Why why someone would do that? Why yeah. you build books two rows deep and, and people who are not knowing what's behind them at all. They're absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And we've of course got the remains of the day, famous remains of the day uh, secret door here. Those of you who've seen Remains of the Day, Anthony Hopkins comes out of the of the room, and that's the the secret um, thing. And what's interesting about that door is you crack it open, and there's wooden panelling on it. If you, I'm sure, if you took that away, behind it you'd see the the medieval hall uh, behind it. This is your secret. Yeah, it's just a, it was just another no, no, no. It's why um, bookcases also do crystals and hiding people, and how again the interest in in secret passages and secret rooms changes with over time. Everything changes over time, and everything changes over location. It's I, I've never seen so many as there are here. Yeah, uh, and I suspect it's all to do with decoration and show. It's quite a showy place. Yeah, um, but th that's a, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating history. Why why these things suddenly suddenly appear and then why they disappear. Among the first bookcases in this country, the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Any of you been to the Duke Humphrey Library, which is the old 16th century library, some of the first books. The Bodleian has also acquired portable bookcases, portable bookcases that are associated with Charles I. So during the Civil War, when Charles I was, was around, and Charles I moved to, you know, moved to Oxford, as you all know, uh, 
what he wanted to do was to travel around with a sort of body of knowledge. And we've got here, sort of, we've got religious works, we've got political works, there's sort of classical works, you know, there's Seneca. 50-odd, 50-odd tiny little boxes. These are the, the boxes that they're put in aren't the originals. These are 1970s replicas to house them. Um, but the idea was that any gentleman who was traveling would travel with a, with a sort of the equivalent of, a, I suppose it's a 17th century equivalent of a Kindle. And there's an MP who in the 1600s had four sets of these made uh, to give as gifts to friends. Great. One last example, and I think we'll stop. Um, oh, these are chain books, really bad things, but um, access to that, that, that bookcase, you, you can access it, you can go there, you can take the books out. Lots of libraries couldn't do that because the chain books were physically chained to the library. This is also the early history of public libraries. You notice they're not spying out, of the, they're spying in, because that means you can pull it and read it without the chain twisting up. Um, they're wonderful things. They've seen Harry Potter or Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, and, and just not on chain books, I mean, it would be very common for a parish church, and here we're on the history of the Reformation again, to post-Reformation, each church would have to have a Bible in it, and would have to have a post-Mary, um, post so in Elizabeth's reign, Elizabeth I's reign, would have to have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they would be chained up. And the idea was that basically you were encouraging universal readership of these central religious texts, you would provide that in the libraries. If you go through certain parish accounts, church wardens accounts, you can piece together the individual lending libraries that um, late 16th century libraries uh, that a parish might have had. So all the books that the church would have had. And um, just we touched on it briefly with Charles's portable bookcases. The other person who had portable bookcases was Napoleon, who took a library around with him when he was conquering places. He also had a personal librarian. Now, what's interesting about this is we know what books he had. So, okay, the portable bookcase is interesting, it's part of campaign furniture, but actually knowing what books these people were reading. Um, when they captured Bill Lane, they, they, um, they, they noted down all the books in his bookcase. It's, really, it's one of the most kind of interesting modern examples of um, the books he was reading. Um, but there were 400 in English, you know, they had, had thousands of books. Um, and these are just a handful of, the, um, of the, <laughs> the CIA documents he was reading. It's one of the standard ways of mapping the intellectual biography of an individual. You want to see what, not only what they've written, but you want to see what they've read. So you want to look at the experiences of them. And there's a whole slew of work done on the social history of reading and reading practices and libraries of particular individuals. Some wonderful work done on John Milton, a uh, wonderful writer and sort of polem political polemicist in the mid-17th century. We have his family Bible, which is full of annotations. And so you can piece together the kind of political, socio-political, religious, Puritan world that he grew up in and get a really sort of rounded sense of the man who effectively justified the execution of Charles I. So there we go. Um, I think the... Charles. Oh, you've missed it. I missed the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Very good. We've just given the unexpected history of Halvorn Castle. So unexpected. So unexpected. <laughs> Can we give him a snippet? Of, of, we're talking about the history of the book. And the Channon bookcases, right? And the kind of the opulence of the, the library and, and the changing fortunes of the aristocracy as it moves from a sort of medieval, medieval military case into a sort of more 
um, sort of educated or intellectual, and that's the context for situating the Channon bookcases. I think what we've done then is, it, we'll wrap things up now because we've all been here for over an hour. The novel tusk, we've demonstrated how that is linked to all sorts of wonderfully exciting subjects, and by exploring it here, you can help understand power itself, but also you can use power to help us understand the world in which it's situated. And also, these bookcases, which you can see are a window into all sorts of things, and a door into secret rooms, as much as secret knowledge. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, and James and I will be around if you want to ask us some questions. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at the History. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Masterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.